Lord, we ask that you would give us uh, the wisdom you have for us this morning in regard to this story and the nature of temptation, that we might be strengthened to respond to you in a more complete way each day. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to set aside a whole heap of questions about this passage and just going to take it as it is and not ask who gave us the eyewitness account or how you can see all the kingdoms of the world from top of a particular place. I'm not going to ask any of those questions. I'm going to look at this, I think, in the way that uh, Luke intended us to to hear it and um, that's to see Jesus being tempted by the devil, the way he responds and what he represents in that activity. And the first thing to say about that is uh, Luke doesn't record the fact that the family that Jesus was uh, born into had to flee into Egypt, but Matthew does. And there's a real sense that in Matthew's account, Jesus is tracking the passage that the people of Israel tracked. They came out of Egypt and then they went into the wilderness. And there's these very deliberate moments in the account where we hear the echoes of the narrative of the history of the people of God and Jesus is in those positions. And this is reinforced in this particular account here because when the devil uh, tempts Jesus, the responses that Jesus make are quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy was the second giving of the law that occurred after the people had been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, 40 days, 40 years. Hearing anything there? Okay. Uh, and uh, the, the, the second giving of the law was to help the people go into the land and live well. And Jesus is using those texts from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8 to combat what the devil is saying to him. So it's locating Jesus, I think, in that wilderness experience. And uh, just like the people of God went through this sojourn, here is Jesus going through this process just like the people, just like the people of God in history, just like us in our life today. We meet temptation So here's Jesus being the representative yet again. And he does quote Deuteronomy when uh, the devil comes up and tempts him. There's so many things you could say about this passage. I mean, even the the casual way where it says he didn't eat anything for 40 days and then he got hungry. (laughs) There's so much you could say about that. I'm not going to go there. But um, so... He quotes a passage to the devil when the devil says to him, you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. There's no question that arises about whether Jesus could or couldn't have done that. It's not a a threat to his power in this sense. It's more a question about what process are you going to use? What value set are you going to use as you go through life and meet various challenges. And Jesus quotes back to the devil a passage from Deuteronomy that was about the fact that God had provided manna in the wilderness. I don't know if you know those stories, but this thin layer of stuff 
would appear each morning in the desert and they'd go out and collect up enough for the day and they could eat it, it was like biscuits. And scientists today have come up with a number of different theories about how this could have happened. Again, we're not going to go there, but that's the story. God provided, miraculously, this amazing amount of sustenance in the wilderness and Deuteronomy says he did that to show the people that a person doesn't live by bread alone but by the word of God. So just feeding yourself isn't what life is about. Just eating and drinking and making merry isn't what life's about and we know that actually if you think for a few moments. There's plenty of people that do have enough to eat but they don't have any purpose in their life or they're extremely lonely or they're disconnected from their community. Those things also in some spaces are as important, well I would say every bit as important as keeping your body going, we need to keep our spirit going, our, our life going. So man does not live by bread alone. Israel struggled to get this. All throughout the history of the people of God they kept thinking no, it's more important to secure our food first. And that, we can relate to that, can't we? There's no, we don't stand on high moral spiritual ground thinking about that. No, we want to secure our food first. Of course we do. But um, God was trying to point out that there are, there are higher values than just doing what instinctually leads to your survival instinct. The next one is the, the uh, call to bow down and worship Satan. He can give all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus, bow down and worship Satan, and Jesus quotes again Deuteronomy, you shall have no other gods uh, than me. Uh, and again, this is something that the people of Israel really struggled with. And I think we should think about this for a moment because if you read the Old Testament and see the way the people continually were told by God not to worship all the gods of the peoples of the land that they were going into, and continually they did. It was, you read it and you think, what, what is it with you guys? They had all these fertility cult religion type things where you'd plant your crops and then you'd go off to the fertility cult and have a bit of sex with a prostitute, you know, make of that what you will but that was the way it was done and it was the established way that the the place worked and they were foreigners the people of Israel coming into this land and they didn't know how things worked so what do you do you look around and go how do things work oh you do it that way okay da, da, da. okay off we go and God's saying don't do it like them and we do this amazing trick in our heads. We go, oh no, we're not. We're just going to do what we need to do and we'll keep being God's people. And there's direct parallels in the way we do life all the time. Like, we think, okay, we think that life is about having enough money and securing our housing and doing all that. And how do we do it? We look around the culture and go, how is it done? That's how we do it. And those bits of scripture that would seem to suggest that God has different values, we kind of go, yeah, but God's never lived in 21st century Sydney. He doesn't know how expensive houses get. And we make these little stories in our head and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can see that's what the people did. You know, yeah, God's my God. I'm just going to go off to the bowels to secure the crops because that's how you do that bit. And when it's time to worship Yahweh, we'll go and do that as well. 
And we do it all the time as well. Jesus is indicating in his response to Satan, I've learnt that lesson. I'm not going to bow down to you. Yeah, having all the kingdoms of the world might be great. I'm not going to bow down to Satan. I'm not going to do that. That I put to you is tantamount to someone in our culture turning away from the stock market and superannuation. That's how monumental it is. It's like saying, yeah, stock market's not for me. Superannuation, I'm not trusting in that. That's how significant a shift I think that is. And the last of the three temptations there is uh, he led him up to that high place and quoted Psalms. Isn't that great? The devil quoting scripture. Lessons to be learned in that as well. Jesus responds by saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Israel continually, time after time, put God to the test. And uh, this is a particular reference to the waters at Massah where they'd been walking through the desert and uh, they were grumbling because they were thirsty and God told Moses to go and tap his stick against the rock at Massah and Moses was having a bad day so he whacked the rock and there's other implications to that but water came out and the response was don't, don't put God to the test. And actually Moses really got burned in that whole experience and he didn't go to go into the promised land as a result. But Jesus is demonstrating that he didn't need to put God to the test. He was happy to trust. He didn't have to jump off a cliff in order to be persuaded that God would save him. He knew the trust was already in place. He was not trying to trust God. He trusted God. Now the dynamics of temptation are interesting. I think they're fairly common because uh, Let's think about this for a moment. What would be the difference between being tempted or simply changing your mind? Because we change our minds, right? So is that being tempted or is that weighing things up and changing your mind? I think temptation is when we make a choice against what we believe we value because at some level we, we stop, we, change, we do a shift of values or perhaps more it exposes something more profound that we value that we didn't know that we valued. Think about that for a moment. (laughs) Being tempted is when you act against what you hold to be good and right. So you think certain behaviour is good and right and you act against it because you've been tempted. It's an invitation to hide from ourselves something we know. We know this is good, but for a moment... We're just going to hide that and do something else because for whatever reason, we're tempted. I was tempted this week to fudge some finances with my mother. Have you ever done something as horrid as that? Um, My mum's very generous to Joe and I and at the start of the school year, we had to pay some school fees and we get a discount if we pay it all up front so we didn't have the money to pay it up front. Mum, could you lend us some money? We'll pay the school fees, get the discount, I'll pay you back, you know, when the tax return comes and all that. I manage my mum's finances. So she said, Dave, you know more about my finances than I do. If the money's there, you can use it. That's how generous my mum is. So I used the money. We got the tax return actually about a week later, so most of it got returned. And there's about $400 And I thought to myself, 
she's not going to miss that. See, I could have ripped her off really easily. And she never would have known, and no one would have known. But the crazy thing is, if I need $400, I just have to ask her and she'll give it to me. Why would I do it? And I hide from myself for a moment this stuff that I know, that it's actually much better not to rip my mother off. Why, why did I do that? Why was I tempted to do that? We play these games with ourselves. It's fascinating to think about what's going on in that little interaction. And like I say, it's so crazy because, you know, actually giving it to my mum, returning what I owe to my mum is like putting money in the bank for me. <laughs> She's going to give it to me anyway. Jesus behaves in an entirely different way. And we see this in his interaction. Satan offers him a story to enter into and he doesn't even begin to play. It's really interesting. See, our mistake is we kind of go, I'm not going to do that, but just tell me about it anyway because it sounds interesting. I'm not going to go down that path, but what is down that path? You know, once you've done that move, oh boy, really tricky ground. But Jesus just rejects the premise. He does not even begin to entertain Satan's way of doing things. And this is the best place to nip temptation in the bud. The knowledge of scriptures really served Jesus well because he just pulled it out and went bang. And none of us are that clever, I don't think, but uh, keep reading the scriptures. They may well help you in a time like this. We often frame freedom as the freedom to choose. You know, you're not really free unless you can choose A or B. That's, that's the freedom of choice. And you can trick your kids like that. Do you want to go to bed now or do you want to go to bed in two minutes? Ooh, two minutes, okay. You've given them the choice, they feel the freedom and they're still in bed in two minutes. And, you know, we get fooled by that too sometimes. But actually, if you have a person who's got so many choices to make that they're virtually swamped by it, there's another kind of freedom. Freedom from the need to choose, which is actually quite helpful as well. Sometimes Joe and I, when we're planning meals for the week, and what are you going to do? There's so many things you can cook, and it's like, oh, I don't know, we do this, we do... It would be so good if someone said, no, it's going to be baked beans all week. Excellent. Bang. Done. And there's a sense in which when Jesus pulls from the scripture these things, he's going, there's no discussion. This is it, bang. Freedom from the need to choose. The choice has been made. I trust this. It's done. And there's a liberty in that, a real freedom in that, which is not there when you're wrestling all the time and caught between this and that. Our, our perceptions of freedom are interesting as well. Once we accept the, offer, the values offered in Scripture, they can protect us from temptation. If we believe what the Scripture says about what's valuable, end of story in one sense. I know, I know it's not as simple as that because Scripture's not clear on everything and there's always tricky stuff and that's the nature of life. But if you, if you want to trust Scripture, it can be your friend in that way. It's also interesting here to see whose desire is followed. Because the, the Satan character obviously offers some things that he believes is very desirable and he's presenting them as desirable. Bread when you're hungry is desirable. Power over all the kingdoms of the earth, desirable. 
being rescued so that you're not hurt, desirable. Satan offers a model of desire which is referenced mainly, it seems, in yourself. What do you want? What do you want now? What's the easiest way to get that? The strange thing about that is that um, when you're free from the reference point of other people, like it's what do you want now without concern for anybody else, so you know, having all the kingdoms of the earth at your disposal, what are you going to do with them? What does it mean for everybody else? We won't even think about that. But whatever you want now and satisfy your desire as efficiently as possible, that's the highest value. That's the value that a lot of people have in the world today. And I think there is abundant evidence that the desire to satisfy self is perhaps the least satisfying thing. And we see it in all sorts of places. If you approach a relationship on the basis of wanting the other person to satisfy your desires, 10 to 1 that relationship will fail or have to go through significant Shifts, and I think that's more often the case because we nearly always start relationships like that and then we grow up, um, and that's hard. Imagine if even you succeeded in subtly manipulating the person you're in a relationship with to do all the things that you want them to do for you. That remains unsatisfying because what we really want is for the other person to love us. And you can't manipulate that out of somebody because if you're manipulating that from them, they're not loving you, they're just easily manipulated. And what we desire is something far more profound than we can manipulate. It's beyond our capacity to manipulate. Joe and I have traversed some interesting times in our relationship. And sometimes, for example, when Joe is struggling and I don't know what to do, I sit there and we've rehearsed this space a number of times, and I really want her to tell me what to do. And she says to me, if I tell you what to do, then you're not doing it. You're just doing what I want you to do, and it's not what I want you to do. Do you get that? (laughs) She actually wants me to love her, and I don't know how to do it at that time, and I'm stuck. You know, it's, it's quite profound because as, as I've realised, we think our way into these things and talk about it, there's fears in me that hold me back from identifying with what's going on for her. And if I can get past that, actually, I can displace myself and love her, which is what she needs. It's what I need at times as well. It's just what we need. It's our task to deeply understand the other person, to clear away the obstacles that block us from appreciating what's going on for them. That's what it means to love. That's what it means to build relationship. That's what's deeply satisfying. Not getting what you want. That's just... I don't know, it's empty. Jesus follows another pattern of desire. By enacting the values expressed in Deuteronomy, Jesus is deciding to follow his father, not Satan. Just like you, Jesus is a follower. Isn't that interesting? It's a good thing. I've said it here before. It's good to follow a follower because they say, follow me, 
and you can do exactly what they're doing because they're a follower. If you follow a guru and they say, follow me, a guru claims to be completely original. So if you follow somebody who's been completely original, in order to follow them properly, you've got to become completely original, which means not following them. You follow? <laughs> Does your head in? I know. That works. <laughs> Jesus follows his father. He says, I do the things I see my father doing. You do the things you see me doing. As I do the things I see my father doing. Follow me as I follow him. It's about following. Not the devil, but Jesus as he follows the father. Because the devil is the prince of nothingness. He is amazingly clever at performing a deception with regard to what is valuable. Satan wants to set the value of everything and mostly Satan relies on our instinct for survival and our fear of death. And in that is an inherently vacuous value because it's about playing on the, the fear of something that we want to avoid. Okay, so that's, it's an emptiness that's in there. It's intrinsically empty. It's a, it's a value of avoidance. So there was a meme going around Facebook this week about um, a hoarder is somebody who piles up lots of stuff in their house, they can't let it go, and we think that they're a bit mentally unwell. Or a cat lady who has lots of cats around... Juliet, you know about cats? Um, you know, having lots of cats around you, and some people think that that's a bit strange. And yet, somebody who's piled up so much money they'd never be able to spend it all, and they impoverish other countries doing it, we put on the front of the Forbes, you know, top whatever magazine and say they're brilliant. But it's exactly the same fear at work. It's the fear of missing out. It's the fear that I won't have enough. That's why the hoarder hoards. That's why people get things around them that they want. That's why the person gets all that money they won't ever have time to spend or enough things to spend it on. And that fear is a vacuous value. That's why they call Satan the prince of the air, the prince of nothingness. There's nothing solid, nothing valuable in there. But it's so persuasive and it's largely persuasive because everybody believes it and that's, again, vacuous. We, have you ever seen those times where people, um, like uh, flash mobs, and they all look up suddenly and, and people go, oh, what's up there? And there can be nothing happening up there, but because a group of people all look at the same time, we are persuaded there's something happening up there. And well, you know, what's going on up there? You know, that's because we're social beings. We take our cues from each other. What the crowd, what the society values, we find very hard to go against. Because they can't all be wrong, can they? But we're all following each other. And nobody knows that it's quite vacuous. And it's just based on this fear of missing out or this fear of death or whatever it might be and it's completely empty. It's so powerful. And so there's this sense that we have a choice. We can stay with our survival instinct that values the, the value of avoiding what we fear or we can choose life. And we see this in Jesus because he continually stepped outside of what the crowd and the society and the religion said you had to do. He cut through that in an amazing way and he valued 
people. He valued vulnerable people. He valued people that the community and the society had already rejected as having no value. He valued prostitutes and lepers and tax gatherers and women who were bleeding in ways that made them unclean and blind people. It's nuts. But he stepped out of the vacuous values of self-interest and avoiding what we fear and said, no, I value the image of God in every person and responded to that in a very beautiful way. The paradox here is that the option for life does put your survival at risk. This is one of those things. And I put to you that unless you believe in resurrection, you can never truly opt out of the survival instinct into the life option. Because you've got to believe there's more life than what you've experienced so far. You've got to trust that even if I lose my survival, what I know to be the, the ground of my being, how we, how we do it in this place, like the Israelites coming into Canaan, they had to not follow the people of the area in their fertility cult. They had to put their survival at risk. That's the way into life. That's the way beyond survival into life. That's why Jesus was talking to people who were walking around living and breathing and saying, come into life. They weren't dead, were they? No, and yes. And he was inviting them into life. Jesus stands in the place of the people. He responds to the same kinds of temptation that the people of Israel responded to and that we respond to, and he models how to do that. But he responds to Satan in a whole other kind of way, where he doesn't entertain the values that Satan suggests are the values. He hears the values of the kingdom, the values reflected in scripture, the values that are so subversive they could possibly ruin everything that we currently use for our survival. We are frequently fooled by the persuasiveness of the crowd. We would do a lot better to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do provide for us a model for what it means to enter into the fullness of life in the way you dangerously cared for people in the way you put your whole social standing at risk because you cared about the most vulnerable. We thank you that you've shown us that that does lead to exclusion and puts your very survival at risk. But we thank you for life beyond the life we know. We thank you for resurrection and the hope of a fuller, deeper, richer, unending way of doing life. And we want to follow that in your precious name. Amen.